a scenario with me. And imagine with me how you would want it to turn out. A teenage girl is feeling happy. She's riding with her boyfriend in his car, a vintage Chevrolet, and she's really happy because it's right after the big game and they're getting some time together, getting some time alone together, which they crave and they just, it just seems like they don't get any time together. And now they're getting some time alone together They park in a secluded patch of woods off the road and talk for a while. And after a while, they get physical, which she enjoys until it gets pretty hot and heavy. He wants to go further, and suddenly she finds she's uncomfortable. She protests. He persists. He presses her, and she suddenly realizes she's in a great dilemma. Because she really likes this guy. And if she says no and he gets frustrated, she may lose his love. He may leave. She doesn't really feel like it's right for her to go further, but she really likes this guy. Maybe things aren't so great at home. Her parents have been a hassle these days. And nobody, nobody looks at her the way that he looks at her. Do you have any idea what that feels like? What should she do? What do we want her to do? What do we want this teenage girl to be able to say, to have the wherewithal to say in this situation? What do we, how do we want the story to go? What do we want the teenage girl to say? So we've been, we've been looking at the book of Samuel in the Old Testament in which God is bringing about a new covenant on the earth. He's actually changing history, beginning something new, and that is a covenant of kingship for his people in which he's going to promise them righteous rule through all generations a covenant of dynasty that we've been talking about, right? And we've been coming towards this, this covenant, this need for a king, because the system at the time, which the Israelites had, the judges' system, wasn't working. In the scripture that we're about to read, we're going to be going back and revisiting 1 Samuel chapter 8. You're going to hear in the first few verses that... It's starting to to break down. Samuel has his sons coming in, and the sons are not good. It's not working. In fact, they're wicked. So they needed something else. And actually, we saw this system breaking down even in the previous book, the book of Judges. You you might have read through that book in the Bible before. You know the second half of the book, post-Gideon, there's this downward spiral. And every once in a while... The narrator comes in and says, you know, gives the theme of the book, which is, and in those days, there was no king in Israel. You remember that line, right? And everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And the narrator comes in and does that, usually at a time when you're feeling disgusted with what's going on in the narrative, right? When you're reading along, you're, just when you're feeling like, this is horrible, and you're recoiling from what the people are doing, 
That, that's when the narrator steps in and he says, oh, and by the way, <laughs> there was no king in Israel in those days. Dot, dot, dot. It's implying for us, what should there be? There should be a king in Israel. And so this book is about kingship. And right from the beginning to the end, like if you go to the back to the beginning of the book, you read carefully Hannah's song that opens the book, the song of Hannah, 1 Samuel 2, really. What does she say? At a certain point in her, in her prayer, in her exaltation, she says, God brings strength to his king. Well, there was, there was no king at that moment. There wasn't a king for a long time. And yet that's how, that's how she begins. God brings strength to his kings. You go, you go to the end of the book. First Samuel, Second Samuel, Second Samuel 22. And how does the book end? With, with David saying, God brings salvation to his king. So the beginning of the book, God brings strength to his king. End of the book, God brings salvation to his king. The book about kingship. And in this section that we're about to read, First Samuel 8, is this five-chapter section, the word king is used 30 times. It's been part of the plan for God to bring a king to his people. He, he, he made them a people. He gave them a law. He gave them a land. One more ingredient for a kingdom, the kingdom of heaven on earth, and that's a king, a human king. And in fact, this has been the plan all along, we can tell, because if you go back to the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, we find that these promises have been made throughout that. Go back even to the beginning with Abraham, Genesis chapter 17. God makes a promise to Abraham. You remember what he says? He says, kings shall come forth from you. Genesis chapter 17, kings shall come forth from you. Well, how can that be unless Israel was going to have a king? And certainly they were, it was not anywhere near a kingdom at that point. God was making a promise. Makes the same promise about his wife, Sarah. Kings will come forth from her. That promise is then repeated to his grandson, Jacob. You go on in the, book, in the book of Genesis, Genesis 35, he makes the same promise to Jacob. Get to the end of the book of Jacob, end of the book of Genesis, excuse me, Genesis 49, talking about the 12 sons of Jacob. And it says, the scepter will not depart from Judah. What does that mean? That means the king that is going to come, that I'm planning to have come, the human king, is going to come forth from the tribe of Judah. You go on to the book of Numbers, and we find a promise given, given by that awful prophet. Remember that awful prophet, Balaam. He's a terrible guy, but the, but the Lord used him nonetheless to speak promises about Israel. And what does he say? Even, even, the, even that prophet Balaam says it. He says, Israel's king, and this is before they even enter the promised land. There's no king. Israel's king will be greater than King Agag. Now, you can be forgiven if you don't know how great King Agag was. Okay? If, that, if you didn't pick that up during your lifetime. But the point is, Israel's going to have a king, and it's going to be great. This is before they even enter. In fact, the first passage we're going to read uh, when Amanda's about to read for us, it's from Deuteronomy, where God starts giving instructions about how to have a king when they enter the land. So God had always intended them 
to have a human king. But then that creates a puzzle for us as we read 1 Samuel chapter 8. So see if you can tell the puzzle as we hear it. I think you'll, I think you'll get it as we hear it read. Why don't you stand with me now, and I'm going to invite Amanda Gottwals to come up and read to us first from Deuteronomy, a brief section, and then this passage for Samuel 8. Our first scripture reading this morning is from Deuteronomy chapter 17, beginning in verse 14. When you come to the land that the Lord your God has given you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. And then to verse 16, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt. Continuing in 1 Samuel chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations." But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots to be his horsemen and to, be, to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest, and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cookers and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men, your donkeys, and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we may also be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go, every man to his city. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Thank you. So you see the puzzle here. After all of these promises, and yet we come to chapter 8, 1 Samuel, it seems to be against the king. You see that? So this is a difficulty. You could say, well, maybe it's Samuel. Samuel, verse 6, he's displeased. Maybe his attitude isn't quite the same as God's, but God's words are pretty negative about a king here, right? 
And it says in verse 7, verse 8, they're rejecting God as king. And then there's this judgment that happens in chapter 12 of thunder and rain during harvest, wrecks their crops. So how do we deal with this? What's the answer to this puzzle? Now, if you are a non-believing scholar, or even actually some believing scholars, that don't really take this to be accurate, you say, ah, this shows us that we have different sources at work. That there's the J source and the E source and the P source and the D source. And what we're getting here is an amalgam of these different sources by a rather unskillful editor <laughs> who doesn't really care about uh, any, any, anything like this. And he's just bringing these things and, and throwing them together. And, and the Yahwehists, they want a king. The priestly source, they don't want a king. So we get these different threads in here and these sources. And they're just rammed together. And that's what you're getting in the in the Old Testament Deuteronomic history. You're just getting these sources kind of, kind of whipped together in exile. And what's the textual evidence for this wonderful theory? Zero. What's the, what's the attention paid to the unity of the book by a single author? Zero. And yet, and yet innumerable doctoral dissertations are uh, kind of built, have been built for generations on this idea, this theory, which is now sort of collapsing these days in on itself. But nonetheless, that's what you might hear. This is evidence of that. Source criticism comes to work. I'm not going to say that to you this morning. Maybe you can tell. Now, what I'm going to tell you is that I love this book. I love the book of Samuel. You know why? Because it's like real life. What we have in the book of Samuel are times when good things are going on. And we have times when bad things are going on. And very often, they're going on at the same time. So you have good things going on, you have bad things going on, it's, and they're going on at the same time. You know what? It's like real life. It's just like real life. And that's what's happening right here. What's the solution to this puzzle? Well... God really tells us, I think, in verse 7, yes, a king is good. It's good to have a king. But verse 7, God kind of brings it out. The problem here is in their heart. They're not sinning and asking. They're sinning in the reason that they're asking. Why is it? Verse 5 tells us, because they want to be like all the other nations. We want to do it like all the people around us are doing it. We want to fit in. We want a king to do what their their king is doing for them or what we think their king is doing for them. And in case you missed that, it's repeated in verse 20. A king like the other nations. You know what God is saying to them? Because he predicts this conversation. You notice in Deuteronomy 17, he actually predicts this conversation. And you don't have to believe that that was written in the exile long after it happened. You can believe that actually God foresaw this was going to happen. And there on the cusp of the land, he, in Deuteronomy 17, he tells them, you know, you're going to come in, you're going to ask for a king. And you can have a king, only so long as it's not like other nations. In other words, God's saying it's good, but not yet. And not like this. Not yet and not like this. Yes, request a king, but not in unbelief. Yes, have a king, but not as a substitute for crying out to me. Have a monarchy, 
but not as the thing to trust in so that you stop trusting in me. So what they're doing is taking a good thing, it seems, and idolizing it. <clears throat> Substituting a king, verse 8, for the Baalim that they had set their hearts on. And that's why Samuel eventually says to them, yes, if you and your king follow God, all will be well. But it can't be the king like all the other nations. And so God's judgment at this point on them is to give them what they ask for. And that happened in the king. Saul. And he becomes like, you know, rain and thunder in a harvest time. He wrecks them, doesn't destroy them, but causes a lot of damage. And so the Israelites then needed to take this long road of traveling to find out what it really means to be a kingdom. A long, long journey to find out what God really wanted in a king to find out what the true king would be for the true kingdom of God on earth. So they got deliverance short term, but at the cost of their liberty and taxation. And it was a while before they were really ready. So this is really the answer of what's going on here. God would have given them a king like he promised to Abraham. Only, not yet. And not like this. Now this is actually not an uncommon experience in the kingdom of God that he's building on earth. This is not an uncommon experience among the people of God. You go back to Joseph, the patriarch Joseph, right? God wanted to raise him up as a leader. It was the same thing. It was guy like, I want to raise this man up as a leader. And he encourages him with a dream, he gives him a dream and says, you know, you're going to be a leader and these things are going to be. And what does Joseph do? He takes the dream right to his brothers and says, well, this is what's going to happen. You're going to bow down to me. Just want you to know that. Okay, well, that didn't turn out so well. Joseph wanted to do it right away. He wanted to get into it. Like, this is the promise of God. It's going to happen. I'm going to make it happen. And then God takes Joseph on a long journey to find out what it really means to lead, which is to care for people, to preserve life. So what was, what was God saying to Joseph all those years, many years? He was saying, yes, Jared, I want you to be a leader, but not yet. And not like this. Same thing. Some of you, I know, are in situations where you want you want to be raised up. You want the thing to happen that you know should happen. And you want it to happen in your life. And you're looking around. You're wondering why you are not being raised up in the way that you should be raised up. And you think you should be. And why aren't people around you giving you the importance that you should have? Maybe it's a situation in your vocation. Maybe a situation in your church. Maybe a situation in a social group that you're in. Why aren't I being raised up? And a lot of times, it's because we don't have a clue as to what, <laughs> what that position really entails, as to what God really wants from us in raising us up, to do it the right way, to have the priorities that God has for us in this situation. We don't know what they are yet, and he needs to take us 
on a journey so that we would learn it. We would learn what true greatness is for him. You know, I can tell you looking back at my life, you know, I'm a preacher. That's what I do. I can tell you very early in my life, I was a very young man, and I was raised up kind of quickly in this church context to preach to people. I was preaching to hundreds of people, hundreds of people, and I wasn't even out of my teens yet. I was the Wonder Boy preacher. All of a sudden, God brought that to an end, very quick end, like that. And for years after that, I was asking him, I was looking at that situation saying, what did that mean? What was that about, God? I was on this trajectory. I was going up, and all of a sudden, came out. You know, that was it. God just stopped it. And it was another 17 years, 17 years, till I would, I would set foot in a pulpit again. 17 years, that's a long time. But what was going on at that time? God was... God was changing my heart because I would be even half, some, halfway useful to him. What was he saying to me during, those, during that time? What was God's word to me? Really, it was this. You know, I do want you to communicate the scriptures, Sam. I do want to use you in that way. But not yet. <laughs> and not like this. You know, uh, there was an elder in my uh, previous church that I pastored. And he had this one question. Whenever we were interviewing a pastoral candidate, he would always ask this one question, and it was determinative. It was, it was the question that this guy would use to say, this, is this the guy we want? This one question. You know what it was? He would look right at the, at the candidate, and he would say, when were you broken? When were you broken? How many of you would like that on a job interview question? <laughs> How many of you have some of you going through job interviews? How would you like that as a question? And he would, he would look at the response that would happen. And if, and if the guy kind of like did a double take, like he didn't know what he was talking about, I was, wasn't going to work. But if the guy had, a, had like some sign of recognition, when he got that question, it's like, oh, yeah, I, I remember this deep disappointment that I had to go through. I remember how I was undone. You know, this guy, the elder's name was Scott Bowermaster. And Scott would say, yeah, this is, this, is a, this is a candidate for us. Common experience, common experience. What God says to us sometimes is what he was saying to Israel in 1 Samuel chapter 8. yes. A king is good, but not yet, and not like this. And so we have the answer, do we not, for our teenage girl in the backseat of the Chevy? What is it that we want her to be able to say in that situation? Isn't it this? Isn't it to be able to say, and by the way, if you want... If you have a daughter and you want a daughter to grow up to be able to say this, if, if she's in a situation like that, you need to make sure that you are upholding and exalting covenant lovemaking. You need, in your household, it needs to be understood. Covenant lovemaking is a beautiful and glorious thing. 
in the right context. That it is a special gift that God wants in your life at the right time. So that she, if she's ever in that situation, would be able to say, you know, I really like you, she says to her boyfriend. And I hope there's a future like this for us. But not yet. And not like this. And if she says that, or you have a son that says that, and they have a girlfriend or boyfriend, if that, if, that, if that boyfriend is worth anything, he'll stick around. And he'll wait. You know, as we think about this, and we think about, like, what it is that goes into this, this kind of a answer. I think about our church. You know, I think that God has something for this church, something very good for this church. I think he wants to raise this church up. I think he has things for this church to do, important things for this church to do. But he wants to raise us up as a faithful community. He doesn't want us to be a community like all the other communities. He wants to do the kingdom here. He wants to build this same kingdom here. So we have to look with his eyes at our church. And when we do that, I hope you can see that what we've been given in Pastor Darren's decision that he made, he announced a couple weeks ago, we've been given a great gift. I hope that you, can, I hope that you realize that. I hope that you realize when Pastor Darren said that he was stepping down, that what you've been given here was an exemplary move by a father who said, you know, my family has these needs and I'm going to put my family before my work. Isn't that what we want? It's a great example for us because he's saying, I want what God wants, but I want to do it in the right way. I want to have God's priorities and you better believe that he and his family will be blessed by that. And you better believe that we'll be blessed by that decision. And if you think we're not, you don't know the God that you're serving. By having the right priorities, God will bless us. And this is how we become a people after God's own heart. We want to become a people like we're reading about, like a David someone after God's own heart. This is how we become a people after God's own heart, to endure an answer like this. Do you know why this is so common in the kingdom? It's because this is how the kingdom was built. You know, Jesus Christ came to earth with big ambitions. When he came, he came to take it all. And he makes no bones about it. If you, if you listen to the things that Jesus says, it's very clear. He has nothing less in view than taking over the entire earth. All of the kingdoms of the earth. That's what he's going for. And he will settle for nothing less. And that was true from the beginning. It's not, he didn't have like an evolving messianic consciousness. From the very beginning, you can hear Jesus saying, I'm here to take it all. To become king over all. When he got here, he found out it wasn't going to be easy. 
fact, maybe, maybe it was a little harder than he was even expecting. As people he found were rife with unbelief, stubborn to their, to their core, not acknowledging him, not giving him his due, he found out that's what it's going to be like. And you know, right about the time he was fine, I think, seeing probably how difficult it was going to be, Satan came to him. You know what he said to him? He said, I know what you want. I know what you're going for. And I can give it to you. I can give you all the kingdoms of the earth. And I can make it easy for you. We just need to have a little understanding. We just need to make a little deal here. I can give them to you. I can make this easy for you. Just what you really want, Jesus. Just bow. Just bow. And you can have it. You know what Jesus said back to him? Let me paraphrase it for you. Not yet. And not like this. Because he did that, because he waited for us, he established the kingdom in which we're now living, where we can wait upon him. He did that so that we, he would do it in the right way, so that he would win us and he would have us in the right way. That's this kingdom. That's the kingdom that he was building. God was beginning long ago in 1 Samuel 8. He built it. He brought it to fruition. He ushered in this kingdom. And so because he waited for us, let us wait upon him now. Please stand with me. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Oh, it is right to give you thanks, to give you praise, Almighty God, because you give and you take away, and sometimes you withhold, and it is for our good, always for our good. And in the end, we see it. Thank you for being patient with us when we don't see it in the meantime. But we... We give you thanks because we know that good is there and it's coming because you bring it about in your time and in your wisdom. And so we join our voices with all the company of heaven in their unending hymn of praise.